Good afternoon, everyone. I'm not sure just whom Nelson was speaking of, since I'm about the only one you listen to around here. But I do certainly expect you to carefully check out everything I preach and teach. I don't want to give you wrong things, and I, whether they are small or whether they are large. My track record way back has not been all that good. I taught a Monday Pentecost for some years and uh, taught the Passover in the days of unleavened bread long wrong for a lot of years. And there are certainly other things that have, have, have had to be amended, that had to be changed. But I hope that we can all grow together and learn together. And as Paul said, be sure you only follow me as I follow Christ. That is a very, very important concept for us to understand because I will make mistakes and little things will slip by me and sometimes big things. Uh, and I misspeak at times. So be careful. I know I don't have all the answers by any means. I'm still searching for answers on some things, and we have found a lot of answers. I think God has opened those answers on a lot of things that we understand that we simply never understood before. They were there in the Scripture all along. There certainly is no new truth. We just didn't know the truth. So we're having to learn more as we go, and hopefully forever to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Never stand still, always move forward, but check it out and be sure that it is true. Phyllis Blake has had a setback. Uh, apparently she's gotten the flu on top of the rehab that she's been going through uh, with her broken hip and everything else that is a problem to her. Her attitude still remains strong, and she is such an incredible example uh, to the rest of us. To be blind, to be one-legged, to be broken-hipped, and the other leg that isn't there, and now the flu on top of it, with her condition, it's a very, very serious situation. So you might continue to remember Phyllis in your prayers. Um, I understand her daughter was trying to get her back in the hospital because of the complications of the flu really made it uh, very hard on her. And anything at her age and with the health condition she has is certainly serious. I would like to call a community meeting this evening at 6. No, no one's in trouble, uh, unless it's me. But uh, there are some things that we need to talk over in terms of our priorities here, and I don't want to discuss them in an announcement period on the Sabbath, but things that we need to do uh, and some choices we have to make in terms of our uh, progression and direction. So I'd like to do that about 6 o'clock not very long after sunset. Some of you may have dinner plans and social plans. Uh, when is sunset now? It's about 5.30, isn't it? Why don't we say 5.30 then? Uh, once the sun is down, we could have a meeting. And that way, if you have guests coming over or Saturday night plans, maybe we could 
keep the meeting at about an hour and you still have plenty of time to have uh, whatever social things you have planned for tonight. So I'll, I'll leave it at that and uh, we understand I mean, there may be something planned that you just simply can't uh, bow out of very easily or whatever so we would understand but hopefully most everyone can be here to discuss some things that are important to all of us. All right, let's go back to Isaiah today. We got down to chapter 50. I, it was interesting this week. I had some mixed reactions, not a lot of input or uh, feedback, but a couple of instances. One was that some people says, <clears throat> what does mud have to do with us? They were out in, on the telephone and thought, why should we need to listen to this? And then another reaction was from some people who were listening in, I think, for the first time. And they said, man, I want to listen more. You cannot talk like that in the church of God today. How can he get away with that? I must hear more. Now that's not a direct quote, but it's an ad lib and perhaps more dramatic than, than the original, I don't know. But the thought was, uh, if you can say those things, I need to hear more. Because they're used to hearing sweet nothings for the most part. And we don't do that here. Now I hope we were not missing the point. I didn't start last week's sermon uh, as a diatribe against mud in the hall. What I was trying to get across is something that affects every church member today, wherever they may be in whatever organization or lack thereof. And that is that Revelation 3 applies to all of us. We are all full of spiritual pride, vanity and ego, and thought we had need of nothing. I say thought, I put that in the past tense, I hope that we are beginning to wake up to our needs, our spiritual lacks and deficiencies. What I was trying to get at was selfishness and thoughtlessness. And people say, well, I just didn't think about it. Well, I know, and I've used that excuse many times in my life, I just didn't think about it. But thoughtlessness has its roots in selfishness. If we're not outwardly thinking of others and what our actions might do to them, then we are being selfish. And that is one of the greatest characteristics of Laodiceanism in the end time, is selfishness, vanity, ego, and pride, and who we think we are and what we think we are and what our spiritual condition is. Now you here and out there, if you're listening to me, have been conditioned to understand that Laodiceanism isn't someone else's problem. It's our problem. And it is a problem that most people in the church today do not consider their problem because after all, they are the only Philadelphians and everyone else is Laodicean. But I think we know better by now. 
I think we know that we have to take personal responsibility for the condition of the church and the condition of our lives today. Now these past few chapters of Isaiah have been God's uh, attempt to focus our attention on who he is and what we are. He keeps reiterating that he is the one who created the earth. He is the one who created doctrine. He is the one who created the church. He is the one who created everything that is that is good. And that we are just human beings. And in all this, he's telling us that he is tempering us in a furnace of affliction. At the same time, he's talking to the end-time church. He's telling us here in chapter 48, verse 20, to get out of Babylon, not to be paying attention to what this world has to offer, but to be getting our attention on he who created everything. That he should be the primary focus in our lives. That whatever there is in this world is certainly secondary or tertiary, <laughs> or to be forgotten, that he is to become everything in our lives, to seek him with our whole heart, not half-heartedly. That's what he's trying to get across. He starts chapter 49 by, listen, the first word, listen to what God has to say. And he's using Jacob as the speaker here, And then he goes on down in chapter 49, verse 14, and says, But Zion, and we know that's a code word for the church today, feels forsaken. We feel that God has just left us. We feel all alone. We don't see great miracles. We don't see uh, God's hand in such a dramatic way that it's obvious God is there. So wherever we are, we sort of feel alone. But God says, I couldn't forget you any more than a mother can forget her baby. So don't worry about that. Then he says to those who are seeking and being faithful, that he will send many others to them, and that we are to put them on like a bride does her clothes, very carefully, very lovingly, with great anticipation. There is some excitement ahead because God is going to begin to gather his people together as he says he will do in the book of Haggai and other places. And right here, because the waste and the desolate places is going to have so many people in it, people say, I don't have room. Bring me in, and he will bring children to replace those that we have lost. And before he's done, verse 26 of chapter 49, he says, All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is going to, at some point, become very dramatic. So much so that all flesh, the whole world, is going to know who our God is. Now today they don't know, do they? They have no idea. I don't know that we really comprehend who our God really is. We did not stand on the edge of the Red Sea. 
We have not seen that kind of delivery yet. Jeremiah tells us that we will forget the Red Sea when we see the next deliverance of his people. It will be so dramatic. So when it's everyone worshiping the beast, but God's few faithful chosen ones, and his few faithful stand up with his power, the whole world is going to know the God of Jacob, the God of the church. Because this is going to be enacted only with a small minority of what has been the church of the end time age, of which we are some of the representatives. The church itself will have to recognize at some point, and many in tribulation will repent, but they will not pay any attention until then. Let me give you a little hint as to why I could say what I said last week, which was somewhat corrective, I guess, in some respects. It certainly seemed that way to people who might not have heard our sermons before. To us, it might not have seemed all that strong. It was just a plea to think and give to others, that's all. And not to be selfish. Why? Can't the ministry throughout the church today speak to the people as I spoke to you last week? Two basic reasons come to mind. One, they're trying to build big organizations. And they're afraid if they speak out, people will go away. Secondarily, those people pay their salaries and they're afraid of losing their salary, that is, their hirelings. Therefore, they cannot speak out and say what needs to be said for fear of losing people and losing money. I do not have those constraints. I am not worried about how many people listen, nor am I worried about how much they might donate. God will give us what we need to do what he wants us to do. And what he has said to do is cry aloud, spare not, and tell my people their sins. He has said, don't preach the smooth and easy things. That's what they want to hear. But he clearly said, do not do that. Now Christ was not trying to convert people when he was here. And he had a great deal of love for the people of this earth, he and his father both. They had so much love that the father sent his only begotten son to this earth that a plan of salvation might be opened. But when Christ was here, he spoke very tough things. Remember what he called the Pharisees and Sadducees? Snakes, serpents, whitened walls, the inside of sepulchers. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. That which the world says was such a sweet sermon that Jesus delivered. Now you break down and understand 
the Sermon on the Mount, and that was one tough sermon. There he said before you could hate, but you couldn't murder. Now he's saying don't even hate. He was saying you could think about it all you wanted as long as you didn't commit adultery or fornication. Now he's saying don't even think about it. He's saying control your every thought and bring every thought into the subjection of Christ, as Paul put it. He made things so much tougher in the Sermon on the Mount, it's almost unbelievable and actually unobtainable, except through the Spirit of the Father and the Son working in our minds so that we don't walk by the flesh but by the Spirit. He raised the bar so high, and yet human beings think that, that was nice, sweet nothings that Christ preached. He said from that point on, you will receive no mercy unless you are merciful. He said, you will receive absolutely no forgiveness unless you forgive others. He left no opportunity for us to be anything but what we ought to be. It was tough love is what it was. He said, I want you to become just like me. It isn't good enough just to control your hands and feet and other parts. You must control your mind and bring it into subjection. Now that's tough. But the results of doing that are eternal life, peace, happiness, and joy forevermore. Why can I speak this way? Because that's what God tells us to do at the end time. And it doesn't matter how many listen. In fact, he has even said ahead of time that they won't listen. They won't want to hear it, most of them. So he said to Ezekiel, who was writing to the end time church, I'll make your forehead like flint. Flint is a very hard rock. You can make arrows and spears out of flint. It is so hard. That is what we have to be. Now we must be loving and tender and cradle the lambs in our arms as David would do and as Christ will do. But at the same time, we need to understand where we are we are at a time when God is chastening. We're at a time when God has turned his face for reasons. And he is not giving us everything we would wish and want. Why? Because we can't handle it. He has given us blessings in the end time church before. Financial blessings. Uh, colleges. High schools and grade schools. But we couldn't handle it. We couldn't handle it. When we were blessed, we forgot God. When we were blessed, we began to not pray and not study and not be devoted in seeking God with all our hearts. 
So he's taken those things away and said, now seek me with all your heart. It might seem hard and harsh to us, as, I, as uh, Hebrews 12 might. No chastening for the present seems joyous. But afterward it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. So the hard line that we are teaching, and that's what the prophecies give, with hope scattered in here and there, are part of what God has laid out for us to hear. He knew how we would be, and he knew what had to be done. He knows the only answer to the world's problems is tsunamis like we just had in Southeast Asia. He knows the only answer to the world's problems is earthquakes in different places, wars and rumors of wars, the sun being heated hot, famine, pestilence, disease, and the sword. And it is going to take years of that. And most people on earth will have to die before those who survive will be willing to turn to God with their whole heart or even acknowledge God. You wouldn't think human beings would be that hard-headed, would you? But we are. And it is only by the Spirit of God that you and I have any opportunity to be different today. Because of and by ourselves, we will walk by the flesh and we know what the works of the flesh are. It is only by His Spirit that we can be different. So He's trying to get our attention here. Now let's go into chapter 50 of Isaiah. He says, All flesh will know in the previous verse. Now let's notice what he says here. Thus says the Eternal. Now this is the context in which he is speaking this. Where is the bill of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? God says, show me the piece of paper that says I divorced your mother. Show me the ownership that some creditor I had has of you. Did I sell you? Did I divorce you? Who really caused the divorce in ancient times when Christ divorced Israel? Did he? No, she was the unfaithful one. Now, he may have eventually put her away, but whose fault was it? wasn't his. He was faithful throughout. What about the church today? The whole church of God. That was our mother. Paul clearly shows in Galatians that the church is our mother. And this, in Isaiah, is written to the church. Now the church has not recognized overall that the Bible is written to the church, especially the end-time church, and secondarily to physical Israel. Paul recognized that, didn't he? Didn't he continually quote Isaiah, Hosea, and other places in the Old Testament 
and make the lesson for the church of his day, the New Testament church. So, first of all, let's not put physical Israel in here. We can put her in secondarily because God will deal with her when he's basically done dealing with the church. Who sold us out, brethren? All right, what's the answer to these questions? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. God has withdrawn from the worldwide church of God because the worldwide church of God first withdrew from him. If it was because of our spiritual pride and iniquity in thinking we were really something, that God had to put us away. It's easy for some to blame Herbert Armstrong for God putting us away. It is easy for others to blame Joseph Tkach for God putting us away. But overall, even those, though those men had their part, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it said earlier in Isaiah that our first father had sinned and his princes had transgressed. So our leaders did do wrong. There's no doubt of that. And Tkachas did really, really wrong. But the culpability really comes down to you and me. It is because we swallowed that and became spiritually prideful that God cut us down. And God is not done. The organizations that are out there today are going to continue to be cut down, divided, scattered, and become more and more cut off by a famine of the work. That is the direction it is headed, and it is the direction it is going to continue to head. And only those who stand up and don't let God's words fall to the ground will be preserved out of it. And when God gathers his remnant, as per Haggai and other scriptures, he is going to draw them from everywhere, not one organization because he knows where his faithful are, no matter what organization they are in or not in. He knows his people. He understands their hearts. He is going to draw them together from wherever they may be. And there are going to be an awful lot of preachers who are dismayed and wondering what happened to their flocks. What we have seen is only a partial famine, but it is going to turn out to be a total famine, as per Amos 4 and Amos 8. All right, let's continue. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? God looked around and said, isn't anyone going to stand up for me? Where is anyone? Where did they go? Isn't there any man? Remember Micah 4 where he says your counselor has perished, your king is dead? And we are staggering around in confusion? 
And this one, that one, the other one, and everyone is standing up and saying, I'm the leader. And those who were commissioned to preach God's Word don't and won't. So there have been those, such as Nelson may have been referring to, who have stood up and decided they would do it themselves and who are in great danger of acting presumptuously by so doing and maybe incurring the wrath of God upon themselves. He does say in Jeremiah 23, which is quoted in the sermonette, that he will set shepherds over them when he is ready. There is no room for the non-commissioned. There is room for the commissioned only if they will do it the way God says to do it. There's going to be great consternation ahead. You see, nearly all of them are in the category of chapter 50, verse 1. Not willing to admit that it's their problem. See, it's God's problem. God did it to me. It's the devil's problem. It's Herbert Armstrong's problem. Joe Stokach's problem or Stavroniti's problem or Bacchio, somebody's problem. I am trying to get all of us to see it's my problem, it's our problem. Just as God tells us here. So when he came, when he started looking, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? He looked down at the mess that was down here and said, who is seeking me? Isn't anyone? Then he reasoned some more. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? He looked around and he saw that everyone was blaming everyone else for being those lousy Laodiceans while they were Philadelphians. He looked down and saw that the church was drifting further and further from God. And he said, look, I've been telling you here for chapters and chapters, I'm God. Are you blaming it on me? Is my arm so short that I can't redeem you? <coughs> or don't I have power to deliver you? Then he makes his point. Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinks because there is no water and dies for thirst. He backed up the Red Sea and made dry land. He backed up the Jordan River and made dry land. He can send drought and dry up the rivers today and will, has been. He says, look around, who is God? I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Now this gives you the timing of this prophecy. It's just before the day of the Lord, has to be, because in the context he's talking about making the heavens black and covering the moon as sackcloth. I can't be far off when this prophecy is given, because it is ultimately part of it. It isn't millennial, it's before that. Now, this becomes an analogy about Jesus Christ, the next few verses in particular, and I want us to pay some attention to it. 
The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakens morning by morning. He wakes my ear to hear as the learned. If we begin to pay attention to God, to listen to what he's telling us here, he is going to give us the ear of the learned. He is going to help us understand the prophecies so that we can be encouraged and move forward. Because there is a great deal of promise in this particular book, for instance. Once we understand what the real problems are and who God is and what he wants of us, and we begin to comply and do that, we are going to begin to be encouraged and strengthened and empowered to do more. But we have to do our part first. <laughs> we are the ones who became swelled up in spiritual pride and vanity to whom God has flattened. We are the ones who tried to walk the fence between the cultures of this world and God's way. And we're losing out. So we're the ones that have to... Does God need to change? No, we're the ones that have to change, not God. He's mature. He's perfect. He does everything right. We have to change if things are going to change for us. He's telling us here, these troubles came on the church for cause, because of our sins. And the way they're going to be lifted is if we listen to what he has to say and respond to it. Then we'll hear. Let's go to Lamentations just a moment. The end of the book of, Je of uh, Jeremiah. Let's begin in verse 21 of chapter 3. Lamentations 3, 21. This whole book is talking about the present condition of the church. Secondarily, the condition of Israel, but first to us. We look at our affliction, verse 19. My soul has them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. We look at the condition we're in, and it should be humbling to us to realize that God has not been happy is the reason we have the mess we have today. And the reason he's not happy is because of our sins, as we just read in Isaiah 50, verse 1. All right, let's see some hope, though. Verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. Remember Psalm 119? His mercy endures forever. It's said over and over and over and over again. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God gives us a fresh start every day. If we pray and ask forgiveness for what we've done and what we've thought and how we've been, his unmerited pardon, his grace is extended to us and the blood of Jesus Christ covers whatever we did so we can wake up clean before him and have a fresh start on a new day to try to control our thoughts and our actions. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the eternal. 
That is the attitude that Habakkuk came to see. He was at odds with God. He called God out on some things. And God answered him. And then Habakkuk said, I think I'll just sit on my watch and wait patiently for God to work this out. He realized fighting God would do him no good. And that is echoed here in the book of Lamentations. Now let's see on in chapter 50, verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Christ was in the world just as we are in the world. And he set his face like a flint so that he would not give in to what this world wanted of him and what Satan wanted of him. He was willing to give everything he had. He gave his back to the smiters, his cheeks to those that plucked off the hair, and he took the shame and despised it, as it says in Hebrews, and the spitting, and answered not a word. Now God gave him the capacity to speak a word to the weary, because he's been through everything that we may have to face. Now, let's understand. We are here to be just like Christ. To be Christ-like in everything we say, think, and do. Maybe I should say that think, say, and do. We should think before we speak. We don't always. I don't always. But everything we think, say, and do needs to be like Christ. We are to walk as he walked, to think as he thought, and to bring every thought into his subjection. That cannot be done without his spirit. We have to call on him. We cannot walk after the flesh, we have to walk after the spirit. In other words, he expects you and me to come to be like he was, and that is to have the tongue of the learned to be able to speak a word in due season to encourage, help, and strengthen each other, just as he can do that here in these words. He may call on us to die for what we believe. He very well may. This very man who wrote this, Isaiah, is reputed to have been sawed in sunder, in half, from stem to stern. Not a cross, but from the crotch up. The apostles, most of them, died horrible deaths. Stephen did, stoned to death. Paul was stoned to death, but lived and later died of the Romans. Matthew 24 makes it very clear. Some of us will have to die. I think all of us would love to be standing there and rise to meet Christ in the air, but we won't be, most of us. 
I, I won't say most of us, a lot will not be. I almost misspoke. Watch those little things. Some will have to die for what they have to believe. I figure I'll probably be one of them. I had, I, I, I guess I would call it a dream when I was in college, just before I gave my first sermonette and began to lead songs in the churches around Pasadena. It was a dream unlike I had ever experienced in my young life. I was about 20 years of age, about the age of accountability, I guess you would say, according to Scripture. A very clear premonition in a dream that if I went into the ministry, <clears throat> I would likely die. And I was given a choice in the dream. Do I go on and do the work in the ministry, or do I back away from that and preserve my life? Now, I didn't think too much of it in some respects at that time. I just, being young and full of vinegar, I figured I could handle anything that came along. You know, you're indestructible at 20. And I figured, all right, if I have to die for this, I'll do her. It did shake me up, however. And I thought very seriously about it and prayed very seriously about it and told God that I did want to dedicate my life to Him, even if it meant death. Now, I'm in a position today where I understand the kind of message that must be preached, and I understand that that creates enemies within the church at the moment, and I understand that if I continue to preach this way, it will make me an enemy of the outside as well. And therefore, I am a prime candidate for death. And if you live as Jesus Christ lived, <coughs> you will become a prime candidate for death. They will hate us with a passion. As much as they will love the beast, which they feel will have delivered them, they will hate us because we will be polar opposites of the beast. We are here today to learn to become polar opposites of this world. Not like them in any way. They are in the dark, we are in the light. They have no understanding, we have a great deal of understanding. If you sit around and listen to me, speak these words from God out of his word, you are putting yourself in danger of the hatred, venom, torture, and death of this world. And God is going to permit it. It says in the book of Daniel that some will die. It says in Matthew 24, some will die, and in Luke and various other places. Jesus Christ was willing to die for you and me. Are we willing to die for him? That's the question on the table. This is the example he set. He obeyed God. He served his father. His father gave him what he needed to say. And he gave an incredible example, such as the world has never known. 
of giving himself for others. Now mud on the floor in this hall may be a small matter. But if we're faithful in small things, we'll be faithful in much. It is the thoughtlessness, thoughtlessness in little ways that leads us to be thoughtless in big ways. But he has promised us, if we'll be faithful even in the little things, we'll be faithful in the big things. In other words, it's a learning process. We learn to give of ourselves in every way we possibly can. And he gave of himself in the greatest way that any human being has ever done. We are to become just like him. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1, day in and day out. Giving up the self for the sake of others. Spending ourselves as we would spend money for the good of others. That's what we're here to do. We're to find ways. We're to pray for ways to do that so that we can be like Jesus Christ. It's been on my mind a lot lately, the first chapter of Malachi, in fact, the whole book of Malachi, but particularly the first chapter where he gets on the ministry and on all of us, really, for bringing the lame and the torn and the sick and the blind to him as a sacrifice or an offering. Now, it's not talking about bulls and lambs of the Old Testament. Malachi is an end-time book written to us. And we are the sacrifices today. Jesus Christ became the Passover lamb. And we are to pattern our lives after his to become sacrifices day in and day out of the self, our way of thinking, and to learn to serve and give to others. That's what we're here for. That's what this lesson is all about, to become like him. And I've prayed pretty deeply that I would quit providing a sick, lame, crippled, blind sacrifice to God. that I would become what I'm supposed to be without blemish, whole and pure and white and clean, to present myself to him every day as a living sacrifice and to you every day as a living sacrifice, sacrificing my time, my energy, my thoughts, my feelings for you and you for me and for each other. That's what we're called to do to be living sacrifices. And God is not pleased with the sick, the blind, the deaf, the lame as sacrifices. We need to become pure as this lamb was pure. We need to be willing to open our ears and not be rebellious or turn away our back, but to give our back to the smiters and our cheeks to them that pluck off the hair, and not hide from shame and spitting and deny the very Lord who purchased us. Verse 7, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. 
Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. If we are willing to do as Christ did on a daily basis, God will help us, and we will not have to be ashamed. He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. If we will devote ourselves and sacrifice ourselves as Jesus Christ did himself, we don't have anything to worry about. None can come against us. Now, they might kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. They killed him bodily, but they didn't kill the soul, did they? He's alive today. He's sitting at the right hand of his father today. And he's sitting on the edge of his throne hoping we will respond and do as he did. That is his greatest hope and joy. So that he can put his arm around us and give us a big hug and say, You're my bride. You're the one I've waited for and hoped for and dreamed of. You're just like me. We have a lot in common. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moss shall eat them up. I'm going to do away with this culture, this society. Everything that is in it, God says. What are you worried about? Who is among you that fears the eternal, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. There are a lot of people in the church who are walking around in darkness now. They would want to obey God, maybe, but they're walking in darkness because no one's giving them any light. They're not, being, they're not having what's going on properly explained. They just don't know. So they may to some degree fear God, but they remain in darkness because the ministry is in darkness. Here's a challenge. Behold, all you that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that you have kindled. This shall you have of my hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. There are people who are kindling fires and making their own light. They want to warm themselves in their own dreams and their own ideas of what God is doing and what they ought to be doing. God used Herbert Armstrong in the end time to call a lot of people and nearly all those people became Laodicea, including me. Now he is chastening, he is dividing, he is punishing, he is seeking any whom he might choose out of all those called. And most of the church does not recognize that. They are out there kindling their own fire of the gospel. 
kindling their own fire of a work they think needs to be done, but they're not paying attention to what God is saying in the Scriptures. So they'll build themselves a fire and compliment themselves and say, we're walking in the light. And they don't have the foggiest idea of what God is doing right now. They think, I guess, God is losing the battle and they've got to get out there and call these people. No! God has called enough that he might choose however many he needs to finish out the 144,000. Herbert Armstrong grasped this. Just before he died, he said, My work is finished. Go get the church ready. And the ministry, almost to a man, did not hear what he had to say. And they all went out and decided they had to do the work of Herbert Armstrong because he hadn't finished it. That phase of the work in the end time is essentially accomplished. Herbert Armstrong did it and recognized the bride was not ready and said, go get her ready. And the ministry instead said, we need to go do a work and call the work. Not much is happening in all those works. Not many are being called. And many who do come don't stay very long. God is only calling a very few at the 11th hour. Not very many. So you can decide for yourself what you think the light is and build yourself a fire and walk in it. But this you shall have of my hand. You shall lie down in sorrow if you do this. They're going to be extremely disappointed when it all comes apart. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. Now that's not speaking to physical Israel. Physical Israel does not follow after righteousness whatsoever. It can only be speaking to those who have an opportunity to do so. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek the Lord. This world does not seek the Lord. Not the real Lord, not God, not the eternal one. They seek the Lord, the prince of the power of the air, the dragon, and don't even know what they worship. <clears throat> so they're not really seeking God. If they did, they'd look in his word. Look to the rock whence you are hewn and to the hole of the pit whence you were digged. He says, consider where you came from. What are your origins? Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah that bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Abraham was the only one God called to begin to people the world with a people of righteousness. This whole section, chapter 50, 51, has a message. That message is, figure out who God is and have the strength, the faith, to follow him. It's about faith. Faith to walk as Christ walked and to go through what Jesus Christ went through. 
What was the hardest thing he went through? Maybe it was those beatings. Maybe it was that crucifixion. But right up there with that, in degree of difficulty, had to be living 33 and one-half years on this earth without ever giving in to even the thought of sin or sin. Now that doesn't mean that he did not have every urge to sin. He was a man. And he was tempted in every point as we are. That means he had the urge to speak up when people spoke evil of him. He had the urge to commit fornication and adultery. He had the urge to lie, to cover himself. He had the urge to hate and to kill. He had every urge to do evil that you have ever had and never gave in to it. The urge is not a sin. The letting the mind turn on it so that it becomes lust and covetousness and therefore idolatry is sin. And when sin conceives, or when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. He had every urge that you and I have ever felt. Otherwise, there was no temptation. And he never once gave in. Now put that on a chart for degree of difficulty. You know, it's real easy for us to be self-righteous and say, well, I keep the Sabbath and we keep the holy days and in Orlando or Branson <laughs> or somewhere we can be entertained. We do what God says. Do we do everything God says? Do we bring every thought into captivity? Do we live up to the Sermon on the Mount? Now put that in your pipe and smoke it, and you won't come up quite as righteous as you thought you were. See, God judges our righteousness based on His standard, not our standard. And He expects a whole lot more out of us than we were delivering. That's why we are scattered and torn apart. So he tells us, look to Abraham. What was Abraham willing to do? Abraham was willing to do anything God told him. That's what. Anything that God in person told him, or that he might have read from Moses or wherever, he was willing to do. Wait a minute, he didn't have Moses to read. I almost slipped that one in there. That came later. But anything God wanted him to do, he was willing to do. And of course, waiting for Isaac to be born when his body was dead and Sarah's was dead, that is to the ability to copulate and to have children. They were willing to trust, and Isaac was born. Now that's walking by faith. And then when that son was essentially grown, 
God told Abraham one day, take your son, take your knife, take fire, saddle your donkey, and go kill your son. How many of us have looked to the hole from whence we were digged, or the rock whence we were hewn? How many are willing to do that? We have our carnal human reasoning. We have our reasons that we will not do what Christ instructed us to do, to leave lands, homes, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, children, whatever, and come and follow him. We are willing to think carnally and to compromise. We are not ready to pull ourselves and our children out of this world and say, this is the way we're going to live. We want to compromise so we won't lose our children. If we do that, we're going to lose them anyway. Your children will respect you a whole lot more if you will do what God says whether they like it or not. God looks to Abraham, who when told, kill your son, your only son, your son of promise that I have given you. Abraham knew God well enough to know God would work it out. He did not walk by sight. Had he walked by sight, he'd have said, you've got to be kidding. But he walked by faith. When God tells us to leave lands and homes and children, sometimes we react by, you've got to be kidding. So he tells us, look to Abraham and to Sarah. Look to your history. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him because he could see Abraham was going to go his way. No matter what the cost, he counted the cost and he was willing to pay that cost just as Jesus Christ did. And we are told in chapter 50 to walk as Christ walked to be just like him. We're all to be little Jesuses here, brethren. That's what we're here to be. We're not sort of here to have a religion. When the world looks at you and me, they should be able to compare the Scripture and say, there's someone just like Jesus. We're not there yet. And in fact, we're so far from it that God is doing to the church what God is doing to the church. And those who will not accept that it is them who are the problem, it is going to get worse and worse. Those who will take personal responsibility and say, I have sinned and come short of the glory of God, I have not been Christ-like, what is going to happen to them? We have to go one way or the other. He says, if we will look to Abraham and to Sarah, aren't we to turn our hearts to the fathers? Aren't we to turn our heart to our heavenly father and to have our hearts turn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers? 
That's what he's telling us here. Turn your heart back to the way Abraham was. Obey God completely, totally, and completely as Jesus Christ did, no matter what it costs, including Isaac. And here is what will happen. Verse 3. For the eternal shall comfort Zion. That's code word for the church, Hebrews 12. He will comfort all her waste places, all her scattered, torn daughters. And he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody, singing and happiness. If we will turn our hearts to our father and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and do as they did and do as Christ did, our grief, our sorrow will be turned to joy. That's a promise from Almighty God. And he's talking to the end time church. Hearken to me, my people. We're the called of God, the chosen generation, the royal priesthood. A redeemed people. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. We don't have to make our own light. He'll make the light. He'll set us on a hill so that it cannot be hid. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, and my arm shall judge the people. The coastline shall wait upon me, and on my arm shall they trust. Some will respond. Some will trust God. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. The timing here is just before the day of the Lord when we are looking to the time when God is going to begin to shake this world like a rag doll. We're almost there. Maybe he is already beginning with some of the things that are happening. There are a lot of volcanoes about ready to blow around the ring of fire. There was an earthquake that just killed upwards of 250,000 people, they say now, and it may be higher than that. No one will ever know how many actually died and who will die as a spinoff from it. Someone the other day who's not even in the church, who knows that I am in the ministry, said, do you think that was a warning? Boy, I guess. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, as Abraham did, as Christ did. Verse 7, hearken to me, you that know righteousness. That's not physical Israel, is it? They don't know righteousness. Only those who have been called out and given the truth. The people in whose heart is my law. Is the law of God in this nation? <coughs> is it in their heart? No. It ought to be in ours. It better be in ours. Fear you not the reproach of men, neither be you afraid of their revilings. See, he's, he's repeating what Christ went through. He was reviled and spoke not a word. We'll see some more of that in Isaiah 53. 
For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Once he puts this in motion, it will last forever, through the millennium. Now he makes the first of three calls here, verse 9. Awake! Awake! Or wake up! Wake up! He's addressing the people who know righteousness. Didn't they all slumber and sleep? Why is it that most ministries today say everyone slumbered and slept but me? Everyone slumbered and slept but us. Everyone is asleep at the switch and lay at a sin but me. What is one of the greatest characteristics of a Laodicean? I am rich and increased with goods. I have need of nothing. I am a Philadelphian. Anyone who spouts those words is a Laodicean. And I'm not just throwing rocks at other people. I was, you were, we still are, to one degree or another. I hope that we are repenting, Laodiceans. I hope we are waking up and getting rid of our spiritual pride, ego, and vanity, and truly humbling ourselves to become like Jesus Christ. When did he ever stand and say, Don't you know who I am? I'm the Son of God! I'm that prophet. He didn't do that. He was the only one that could have qualified to. But he didn't do it. He'd say, you say I am. He would turn it aside. He didn't brag about who he was, what he was. He wasn't so insecure that he had to crow about his position. He wasn't so full of ego that he had to convince everybody how important he was. He chose meekness and humility. We better be careful when we stand and say, this organization is the only one that is Philadelphia. That's scary in the light of these verses. He tells us to wake up. To wake up, put on strength, O arm of the eternal. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not it that has cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Are you not it which has dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that has made the depths of the sea away for the ransom to pass over? We're in a time right now, brethren, when we're looking around and saying, Man, where's God? Where, where are the miracles of the Red Sea? Where is the miracle of the Jordan? Where is the miracle of Jericho? <coughs> where is the resurrection of Lazarus? Where is the healing with the shadow of Peter passing over them? Where are all those things? That's the position we're in because we're not seeing those things right now. God 
is not going to do that until we wake up. Now in some respects, verse 9, is a call for God to wake up. To wake up to our plight. Now this, this could have perhaps several meanings. It's part a call to us because God works through human arms. He worked through arm strong to call many. And he has always worked through human beings. So while this may be in one sense a call for God to wake up to what's going on, at the same time I think perhaps the greater message, because God isn't asleep, is for those who would lead to wake up. Those whom God has extended his arm to and said, do my work. It's time for the ministry to wake up. And do the things which he did through Moses. And do the things which he did through Joshua and through James, Peter, John, and so on. Because they were an extension of the arm of God. God used Moses to command and to stretch forth his arms that the Red Sea would part. God has always worked through human beings. That has not changed. He will do it again. <clears throat> Therefore the redeemed of the eternal shall return and come with singing to Zion. The context here is when the turnaround comes and God begins to gather his faithful remnant. Therefore the redeemed of the eternal shall return and come with singing to Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. Once this turns around, even though we're not in the kingdom of God yet, we will never go back to what we're in now. It will be upward and onward ever after. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. God is providing a Zion for us to come to at the end. And he is going to provide the heavenly city, the church, Zion, for Israel to come to when they come out of captivity. But he's calling on us now to wake up and come out of captivity. For the ministry to wake up and understand what's going on so that God can deliver <clears throat> as he did through Moses and Joshua and so on. Verse 12, I, even I, am he that comforts you who are you that you should be afraid of a man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? The New World Order, the UN, the beast, Germany, whatever the final form is. Who are we that we should be afraid? God has delivered in the past. He's going to wake up and do it again in the future. And it's going to be such a deliverance that we will not even remember the Red Sea anymore. It will be so dramatic. That is ahead for us. So who do we think we are to be afraid of what is coming? If we will give our lives to God and be the kind of sacrifice Jesus Christ was, we have nothing to worry about. If we will walk as Abraham walked, we have nothing to worry about. 
Man is going to be made like grass. James quotes that. All flesh is as grass. It withers and dies. Verse 13, And forget the eternal your maker that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? <clears throat> we don't have to worry about it. God says he will deliver his people. Oh, some will die, but that's okay. Some of the faithful will die, and that's okay. Their salvation will be assured. The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. But I am the eternal your God that divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. God is going to put the words, or had put the words, in Isaiah's mouth, Jeremiah's mouth, Ezekiel's, Daniel's mouth, to write these things down. And we need to repeat what these men have written. They were the prophets of God. And their words need to be read to us. Because we're the end time <coughs> ones who are filling out the bride of Christ. We're the ones who are finishing the 144,000. We're the ones who need to hear it now. Again in 17, wake up, wake up, stand up, O Jerusalem. Now the church has been bowed over, stooped down, sitting down, laying down before this world and its culture. He says, stand up. which have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Haven't we gone through an awful lot in the last year since 1986? An awful lot. He says, wake up and stand up. It's you I'm talking to. You that have gone through all this. I want your attention now. He has some things he wants done. So listen up. Verse 18, There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Since Herbert Armstrong died, have we had anyone that we could look to that could guide us in the ways of righteousness? No. There's, you know, we all recognized who the leader was until January 16, 1986. And since then, we have been stumbling around in confusion. This one, that one, the other one standing up saying, I'm the leading evangelist, I'm that prophet, I'm this, I'm that. Our council of elders has all the answers. Wherever you go, it seems... Everyone is trying to be the one to guide her. But God says there isn't anyone. 
These past years there's been none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. No one has the capacity, the guidance, the ability, the support of God to do it. It wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to humble us. His purpose was to take our sick pride of thinking we were okay away. <clears throat> These two things are come to you. Who shall be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction and the famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort you? Does the church have comfort today? There are those who are trying to comfort and not doing much good at it. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. Can't do anything. Have you seen a wild bull in a net? I mean, he can be pawing the ground. He can be hooking with his horns. He can be chasing you down. He can be a pretty formidable foe. But a wild bull in a net can't do much. Neither can the sons of the church. They are full of the fury of the eternal, the rebuke of your God. God has pinned the ministry down so that we cannot do much. Toothless, hornless, unable. Therefore hear now this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Staggering around, but wine isn't the cause. We're staggering around with false doctrine, bad teaching, stupidity, and sin. Spiritual staggering. Thus says, the eternal, the etern uh, thus says your Lord, the eternal, and your God that pleads the cause of his people. <clears throat> He's going to turn it around. This weakness, this inability to cope, this inability to be as God would have us be is going to turn around. Thus says the eternal your God, and your God that pleads the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, fear, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no more drink it again. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you, which have said to your soul, Bow down, that we may go over. And you have laid your body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. Who has done it to us? A ministry that has gone into Babylon, a ministry that never really came out of Babylon in many cases, most cases, including me. This world has done it to us. The church and the world. God is punishing the church for that, and he is about to punish the world for that. But he promises us that we'll no more be walked on. He gives us one more warning. Chapter 52. Wake up! Wake up! Third time. Put on your strength, O Zion. Now isn't the power of the holy people being scattered? It is almost accomplished. We're getting very near the end of this. 
But he tells those who would be faithful, his faithful remnant, those who will listen to him, to wake up and put on strength. There's only going to be one place that has power and strength when this is all done. All the daughters of Zion are going into the tribulation but one. I want to be in that group of people. I want us all to be there. We understand ahead of time we have every opportunity to prepare ourselves to be there. God will bring his remnant together. Haggai promises it. So put on your strength, O Zion. We don't have any on our own, do we? Where's it going to come from? It's going to come from on high. Pray for strength from God. That's how you put on the strength. You read his word, you live by it, and you pray for power and strength from God to grow, to overcome, to be different, and to be like you ought to be. That's where we get our strength. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. He calls us the holy city in chapter 60, verse 14. He calls us that in Revelation 19. He calls us that in Hebrews 12, 22, 3, 4. We are the city of God. Put on your beautiful garments, our wedding garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. God is only going to stir those who will be holy and righteous. Those are the only ones that are going to come. He will gather his remnant. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit up. We've been laying prostate on the ground, letting Babylon walk all over us. And he says, don't do that anymore. Sit up. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. We're captivated in this world. God has given us opportunity to come out of it. Some are, some aren't. Some will, some won't. For thus says the Eternal, you have sold yourselves for nothing. We didn't get anything out of it. We sold ourselves to this world. And you shall be redeemed without money through the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ and God's mercy if we will put on our holy garments. For thus says the eternal God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. They went there to feed, to eat, and the Hyksos of the Assyrians were part of the leadership of Egypt apparently, and will punish us again. Now therefore, what have I here, says the eternal, that my people is taken away for nothing? They that rule over them make them to howl, says the Eternal. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. We howl about the way things are in this world and how ungodly it is and how we are drawn into ungodliness by the world. We howl because the ministry is not teaching us to be godly but is allowing us to touch the unclean things. The ministry has not made a difference between the clean and the unclean, says Haggai. It must be done. 
Well, I'm out of time, so I think we'll break off with that thought. Well, let's read one more and go out on an encouraging note. Verse 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. God is going to begin himself to make a difference. If we will respond, if we will wake up, if we'll realize who he really is and get rid of the gods of this world and this society and the idolatry within the church of Laodiceanism, then we're going to find out who God is. <coughs> and he will be on our side and we will have everlasting joy and happiness and peace. That's what we're here for, brethren. That's what we're here to learn. That's what we're here to partake of. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not here to beat you down. I'm here to teach you what you're doing wrong so that you might change that and have the everlasting blessing of eternal God. That's what this is all about.